I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's always a pleasure to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to Little Women, but before we do that, take a moment here to breathe and relax. Imagine you are resting on a front porch swing on a beautiful early summer's morning. The air is still fresh with the dew, but the sun has just risen and you can feel its warmth already. It's going to be a hot day. There are roses creeping up the porch banisters, just coming into bloom. Take some time to yourself to think about what else you see what you can smell, and what you feel here on this sunny porch. Stretch your arms over your head and now drop them by your sides. Take a deep breath in, maybe smelling the scent of the damp grass or the nearby roses. Hold it for a moment and then exhale completely and notice how much lighter you feel. Inhale once more. Hold it and now exhale, breathing out all your worries. You feel a sense of calm and optimism. The last time you were here, we began part two of our book, which jumped forward three years from where we left the girls. Mr. March has become the local minister. Mrs. March has been preparing Meg for her upcoming marriage. Jo has been taking her writing more seriously and no longer sits with Aunt March, who has now a preference for Amy since her scarlet fever vacation. Laurie has been to college and is just finishing his studies, though he is still as much of a prankster and a rogue as ever. Meg and John have been betrothed all this time, while John has worked hard to buy a little cottage for them. All Meg's sisters have been helping to furnish the home, ready for them to go back to after their wedding. It has been a mental adjustment for Meg to come to terms with her humble start in life, not the fine house and lovely dresses she had imagined in her castle on the clouds. But when she thinks of John, she feels truly happy and content. And so we pick up tonight on the glorious wedding day of Meg and John Brooke. So just close your eyes 
and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 25 The First Wedding The June roses over the porch were awake, bright and early on that morning, rejoicing with all their hearts in the cloudless sunshine, like friendly little neighbours as they were. Quite flushed with excitement with their ruddy faces as they swung in the wind, whispering to one another what they had seen, for some peeped in at the dining room windows where the feast was spread. Some climbed up to nod and smile at the sisters as they dressed the bride. Others waved a welcome to those who came and went on various errands in the garden, porch, and hall, and all from the rosiest full-blown flower to the palest baby bud offered their tribute of beauty and fragrance to the gentle mistress who had loved and tended them so long. Meg looked like a rose herself, for all that was best and sweetest in her heart and soul seemed to bloom into her face that day, making it fair and tender with a charm more beautiful than beauty. Neither silk, nor lace, nor orange flowers would she have. I don't want a fashionable wedding, but only those about me whom I love, and to them I wish to look and be my familiar self. So she made her wedding gown herself, sewing it in the tender hopes and innocent romances of a girlish heart. Her sisters braided up her pretty hair, and the only ornaments she wore were the lilies of the valley, which her John liked best of all the flowers that grew. You do know just like our own dear Meg, only so very sweet and lovely that I should hug you if it wouldn't crumple your dress, said Amy, surveying her with delight when all was done. Then I am satisfied, but please hug and kiss me, everyone, and don't mind my dress. I want a great many crumples of this sort put into it today and Meg opened her arms to her sisters, who clung about her with April faces for a minute, feeling that the new love had not changed the old. Now I'm going to tie John's cravat for him, and then stay for a few minutes with Father, quietly in the study. And Meg ran down to perform these little ceremonies, and then to follow their mother wherever she went, conscious that in spite of the smiles on the motherly face, there was a secret sorrow hid in the motherly heart at the flight of the first bird from the nest. 
as the younger girls stand together, giving the last touches to their simple attire, it may be a good time to tell of a few changes which three years have wrought in their appearance, for all are looking their best just now. Jo's angles are much softened. She has learned to carry herself with ease, if not grace. The curly crop has lengthened into a thick coil, more becoming to the small head atop of the tall figure. There is a fresh colour in her brown cheeks, a soft shine in her eyes, and only gentle words fall from her sharp tongue today. Beth has grown slender, pale, and more quiet than ever. The beautiful, kind eyes are larger, and in them lies an expression that saddens one, although it is not sad itself. It is the shadow of pain which touches the young face with such pathetic patience that Beth seldom complains and always speaks hopefully of being better soon. Amy is, with truth, considered the flower of the family, for at sixteen she has the air and bearing of a full-grown woman. Not beautiful, but possessed of that indescribable charm called grace. One saw it in the lines of her figure, the make and motion of her hands, the flow of her dress, the droop of her hair, unconscious yet harmonious and as attractive to many as beauty itself. Amy's nose still afflicted her, for it never would grow Grecian. So did her mouth being too wide and having a decided chin. These offending features gave character to her whole face. She could never see it and consoled herself with her wonderfully fair complexion, keen blue eyes, and curls more golden and abundant than ever. All three wore suits of thin silver grey, their best gowns for the summer, with blush roses in hair and bosom, and all three looked just what they were, fresh-faced, happy-hearted girls, pausing a moment in their busy lives to read, with wistful eyes, the sweetest chapter in the romance of womanhood. There were to be no ceremonious performances. Everything was to be as natural and homelike as possible. So when Aunt March arrived, she was scandalized to see the bride come running to welcome and lead her in, to find the bridegroom fastening up a garland that had fallen down, and to catch a glimpse of the paternal minister marching upstairs with a grave countenance and a wine bottle under each arm. Upon my word, Here's a state of things, 
said the old lady, taking her seat of honor prepared for her and settling the folds of her lavender moire with a great rustle. You oughtn't to be seen till the last minute, child. I'm not a show, auntie, and no one is coming to stare at me, to criticize my dress, or count the cost of my luncheon. I'm too happy to care what anyone says or thinks, but I'm going to have my little wedding just as I like it. John dear, here's your hammer. And away went Meg to help that man in his highly improper employment. Mr. Brooke didn't even say thank you, but as he stooped for the unromantic tool, he kissed his little bride behind the folding door with a look that made Aunt March whisk out her pocket handkerchief with a sudden dew in her sharp old eyes. A crash, a cry, and a laugh from Laurie accompanied by the indecorous exclamation, Jupiter Ammon, Joe's upset the cake again, caused a momentary flurry which was hardly over when a flock of cousins arrived and the party came in, as Beth used to say when a child. Don't let that young giant come near me. He worries me worse than mosquitoes, whispered the old lady to Amy as the rooms filled and Laurie's black head towered above the rest. He has promised to be very good today. He can be perfectly elegant if he likes, returned Amy, and gliding away to warn Hercules to beware of the dragon which warning caused him to haunt the old lady with a devotion that nearly distracted her. There was no bridal procession, but a sudden silence fell upon the room as Mr. March and the young couple took their places under the green arch. Mother and sisters gathered close, as if loath to give Meg up. The fatherly voice broke more than once, which only seemed to make the service more beautiful and solemn. The bridegroom's hand trembled visibly, and no one heard his replies. But Meg looked straight up in her husband's eyes and said, I will, with such tender trust in her own face and voice, her mother's heart rejoiced, and Aunt March sniffed audibly. Jo did not cry, though she was very near at once, and was only saved from a demonstration by the consciousness that Laurie was staring fixedly at her with a comical mixture of merriment and emotion in his wicked black eyes. Beth kept her face hidden on her mother's shoulder, but Amy stood like a graceful statue with a most becoming ray of sunshine touching her white forehead and the flower in her hair. It wasn't at all the thing, I'm afraid, 
but the minute she was fairly married, Meg said, The first kiss for mommy, and turning, gave it with her heart on her lips. During the next 15 minutes, she looked more like a rose than ever, for everyone availed themselves of their privileges to the fullest extent, from Mr. Lawrence to old Hannah, who adorned with a headdress fearfully and wonderfully made, fell upon her in the hall, crying with a sob and a chuckle. Bless you, dearie, a hundred times. Everything looks lovely. Everybody cleared up after that and said something brilliant, or tried to, which did just as well, for laughter is ready when hearts are light. There was no display of gifts, for they were already in the little house, nor was there an elaborate breakfast, but a plentiful lunch of cake and fruit dressed with flowers. Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March shrugged and smiled at one another when water, lemonade, and coffee were found to be the only sorts of nectar which the three servants carried round. No one said anything till Laurie, who insisted on serving the bride, appeared before her with a loaded salver in his hand and a puzzled expression on his face. Has Joe smashed all the bottles by accident? He whispered. Or am I merely laboring under the delusion that I saw some lying about loose this morning? No, your grandfather kindly offered us his best, and Aunt March actually sent some. The father put it away a little for Beth and dispatched the rest to the soldier's home. You know he thinks that wine should be used only in illness, and Mother says that neither she nor her daughters will ever offer it to any young man under her roof. Meg spoke seriously and expected to see Laurie frown or laugh, but he did neither, for after a quick look at her, he said in his impetuous way, I like that. You are not made wise by experience, I should hope. And there was an anxious accent in Meg's voice. No, I give you my word for it. Don't think too well of me either. This is not one of my temptations. Being brought up where wine is as common as water and almost as harmless, I don't care for it. When a pretty girl offers it, one doesn't like to refuse, you see. But you will, for the sake of others, if not your own. Come, Lloyd, promise, and give me one more reason to call this the happiest day of my life. A demand so sudden and so serious made the young man hesitate for a moment, for ridicule is often harder to bear than self-denial. Meg knew that if he gave the promise... He would keep it at all costs, and feeling her power, used it as a woman may for her friend's good. She did not speak, but she looked up at him with a face made very eloquent by happiness, and a smile which said, 
No one can refuse me anything today. Dory certainly could not. With an answering smile, he gave her his hand, saying heartily, I promise, Mrs. Brooke. I thank you very, very much. And I drink long life to your resolution, Teddy, said Joe, baptizing him with a splash of lemonade as she waved her glass and beamed approvingly on him. So the toast was drunk, the pledge made and loyally kept in spite of many temptations, for, with instinctive wisdom, the girls seized a happy moment to do their friend a service, for which he thanked them all his life. After lunch, People strolled about by twos and threes through the house and garden, enjoying the sunshine without and within. Meg and John happened to be standing together in the middle of the grass plot when Laurie was seized with an inspiration which put the finishing touch to this unfashionable wedding. All the married people take hands and dance round the new-made husband and wife while we bachelors and spinsters prance in couples outside, said Laurie, promenading down the path with Amy with such infectious spirit and skill that everyone else followed their example without a murmur. Mr. and Mrs. March, Aunt and Uncle Carol began it, Others rapidly joined in. Even Sally Moffat, after a moment's hesitation, threw her train over her arm and whisked Ned into the ring. But the crowning joke was Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March, for when the stately old gentleman chasséed solemnly up to the old lady, she just tucked her cane under her arm and hopped briskly away to join hands with the rest and dance about the bridal pair, while the young folks pervaded the garden like butterflies on a midsummer day. Want of breath brought the impromptu ball to a close, and then people began to go. I wish you well, my dear. I heartily wish you well. But I think you'll be sorry for it, said Aunt March to Meg, adding to the bridegroom as he led her to the carriage. You've got a treasure, young man. See that you deserve it. That is the prettiest wedding I've been to for an age, Ned, and I don't see why, for there wasn't a bit of style about it, observed Mrs. Moffat to her husband as they drove away. Oi, my lad, if you ever want to indulge in this sort of thing, get one of those girls to help you, and I shall be perfectly satisfied, said Mr. Lawrence, settling himself in his easy chair to rest after the excitement of the morning. I'll do my best to gratify you, sir, was Laurie's unusually dutiful reply as he carefully unpinned the posy 
Joe had put in his buttonhole. The little house was not far away, and the only bridal journey Meg had was the quiet walk with John from the old home to the new. When she came down, looking pretty in her dove-coloured suit and straw bonnet tied with white, they all gathered about her to say goodbye as tenderly as if she had been going to make the grand tour. Don't feel that I'm separated from you, Mommy dear, or that I love you any less for loving John so much, she said, clinging to her mother with full eyes for a moment. I shall come every day, Father, and expect to keep my old place in all your hearts, though I am married. Beth is going to be with me a great deal, and the other girls will drop in now and then to laugh at my housekeeping struggles. Thank you all for my happy wedding day. Goodbye. Goodbye. They stood, watching her with their faces full of love and hope and tender pride as she walked away, leaning on her husband's arm with her hands full of flowers and the June sunshine brightening her happy face. And so Meg's married life began. Chapter 26 Artistic Attempts It takes people a long time to learn the difference between talent and genius, especially ambitious young men and women. Amy was learning this distinction through much tribulation. For mistaking enthusiasm for inspiration, she attempted every branch of art with youthful audacity. For a long time, there was a lull in the mud pie business, and she devoted herself to the finest pen and ink drawing, in which she showed such taste and skill that her graceful handiwork proved both pleasant and profitable. But overstrained eyes caused pen and ink to be laid aside for a bold attempt at poker sketching. While this attack lasted, the family lived in constant fear of a conflagration, for the odor of burning wood pervaded the house at all hours. Smoke issued from attic and shed with alarming frequency. Red-hot pokers lay about promiscuously, and Hannah never went to bed without a pail of water and the dinner bell at her door in case of a fire. Raphael's face was found boldly executed on the underside of the moulding board and Bacchus on the head of a beer barrel. A chanting cherub adorned the cover of a sugar bucket and attempts to portray Romeo and Juliet supplied kindling for some time. From fire to oil was a natural transition for burned fingers, 
and Amy fell to painting with undiminished ardor. An artist friend fitted her out with his cast-off palettes, brushes, and colors, and she daubed away, producing pastoral and marine views such as were never seen on land or sea. Her monstrosities in the way of cattle would have taken prizes at an agricultural fair, and the perilous pitching of her vessels would have produced seasickness in the most nautical observer, if the utter disregard to all known rules of shipbuilding and rigging had not convulsed him with laughter at the first glance. Swarthy boys and dark-eyed Madonnas staring at you from one corner of the studio suggested Marillo. Oily brown shadows of faces with a lurid streak in the wrong place meant Rembrandt. Buxom ladies, Rubens, and Turner appeared in tempests of blue thunder, orange lightning, brown rain, and purple clouds with a tomato-colored splash in the middle, which might be the sun or a boy, a sailor's shirt or a king's robe, as the spectator pleased. Charcoal portraits came next, and the entire family hung in a row, looking as wild as if just evoked from a coal bin. Softened into crayon sketches, they did better, for the likenesses were good, and Amy's hair, Joe's nose, Meg's mouth, and Laurie's eyes were pronounced wonderfully fine. A return to clay and plaster followed, and ghostly cats of her acquaintances haunted corners of the house or tumbled off closet shelves onto people's heads. Children were enticed in as models till their incoherent accounts of her mysterious doings caused Miss Amy to be regarded in the light of a young ogress. Her efforts in this line, however, were brought to an abrupt close by an untoward incident which quenched her ardor. Other models failing her for a time, she undertook to cast her own pretty foot, and the family were one day alarmed by an unearthly bumping and screaming and running to the rescue, found the young enthusiast hopping wildly about the shed with her foot held fast in a pan full of plaster, which had hardened with unexpected rapidity. With much difficulty and some danger, she was dug out, for Joe was so overcome with laughter while she excavated that her knife went too far, cut the poor foot, and left a lasting memorial of one artistic attempt at least. 
After this, Amy subsided till a mania for sketching from nature set her to haunting river, field, and wood for picturesque studies and sighing for ruins to copy. She caught endless colds, sitting on damp grass to book a delicious bit composed of a stone, a stump, one mushroom, and a broken mullion stalk, or a heavenly mass of clouds that looked like a choice display of feather beds when done. She sacrificed her complexion, floating on the river in midsummer sun to study light and shade, and got a wrinkle over her nose, trying after points of sight, whatever the squint and string performance is called. If genius is eternal patience, as Michelangelo affirms, Amy had some claim to the divine attribute, for she persevered in spite of all obstacles, failures, and discouragements, firmly believing that in time she should do something worthy to be called high art. She was learning, doing, and enjoying other things meanwhile, for she had resolved to be an attractive and accomplished woman, even if she never became a great artist. Here she succeeded better, for she was one of those happily created beings who please without effort, make friends everywhere, and take life so gracefully and easy that less fortunate souls are tempted to believe that such are born under a lucky star. Everybody liked her, for among her good gifts was tact. She had an instinctive sense of what was pleasing and proper, always said the right thing to the right person, did just what suited the time and place, and was so self-possessed that her sisters used to say, if Amy went to court without any rehearsal beforehand, she'd know exactly what to do. One of her weaknesses was a desire to move in our best society, without being quite sure what really the best was. Money, position, fashionable accomplishments, and elegant manners were most desirable things in her eyes, and she liked to associate with those who possessed them, often mistaking the false for the true and admiring what was not admirable. Never forgetting that by birth she was a gentlewoman, she cultivated her aristocratic tastes and feelings so that when the opportunity came, she might be ready to take the place from which poverty now excluded her. My lady, as her friends called her, sincerely desired to be a genuine lady and was so at heart had yet to learn that money cannot buy refinement of nature, that rank does not always confer nobility, 
and that true breeding makes itself felt in spite of external drawbacks. I want to ask a favor of you, Mama, Amy said, coming in with an important air one day. Well, little girl, what is it? replied her mother, in whose eyes the stately young lady still remained the baby. Our drawing class breaks up next week, and before the girls separate for summer, I want to ask them out here for a day. They are wild to see the river, sketch the broken bridge, and copy some of the things they admire in my book. They have been very kind to me in many ways, and I am grateful. They are all rich, and know I am poor, yet they never made any difference. Why should they? And Mrs. March put the question with what the girls called her Maria Teresa air. You know as well as I that it does make a difference with nearly everyone, so don't ruffle up like a dear motherly hen when your chickens get pecked by smarter birds. The ugly duckling turned out a swan, you know. And Amy smiled without bitterness as she possessed a happy temper and hopeful spirit. Mrs. March laughed and smoothed down her maternal pride as she asked, Well, my swan, what is your plan? I should like to ask the girls out to lunch next week, to take them for a drive to the places they want to see, a row on the river perhaps, and make a little artistic fate for them. That looks feasible. What do you want for lunch? Cake? Sandwiches? Fruit and coffee will be all that is necessary, I suppose. Oh dear, no. We must have cold tongue and chicken, French chocolate, and ice cream besides. The girls are used to such things, and I want my lunch to be proper and elegant. I do work for my living. How many young ladies are there? Asked Mother, beginning to look sober. Twelve or fourteen in the class, but I dare say they won't all come. Bless me, child. You will have to charter an omnibus to carry them about. My Mother, how can you think of such a thing? Not more than six or eight will probably come. So I shall hire a beach wagon and borrow Mr. Lawrence's cherry bounce. Hannah's pronunciation of Shara Bonds. All of this will be expensive, Amy. Not very. I've calculated the cost and I'll pay for it myself. Don't you think, dear, that these girls are used to such things and the best we can do will be nothing new? some simpler plan would be pleasanter to them. It's a change, if nothing more, and much better for us than buying or borrowing what we don't need, attempting a style not in keeping with our circumstances. If I can't have it as I like, I don't care to have it at all. I know that I can carry it out perfectly well if you and the girls will help a little, and I don't see why I can't if I'm willing to pay for it said Amy, with the decision which opposition was apt 
to change into obstinacy. Mrs. March knew that experience was an excellent teacher, and when it was possible, she left her children to learn alone the lessons which she would have gladly made easier if they had not objected to taking advice as much as they did salts and senna. Very well, Amy. If your heart is set upon it, do you see your way through without too great an outlay of money, time, and temper? I'll say no more. Talk it over with the girls, and whichever way you decide, I'll do my best to help you. Thanks, Mother. You're always so kind. And away went Amy to lay her plan before her sisters. Meg agreed at once and promised her aid, gladly offering anything she possessed, from her little house itself to her very best salt spoons. But Joe frowned upon the whole project and would have nothing to do with it at first. Why in the world should you spend your money, worry your family and turn the house upside down for a parcel of girls who don't care a sixpence for you. Thought you had too much pride and sense to truckle any mortal woman just because she wears French boots and rides in a coupe, said Joe, who being called from the tragic climax of her novel was not in the best mood for social enterprises. I don't truckle, and I hate being patronized as much as you do returned Amy indignantly, for the two still jangled when such questions arose. The girls do care for me, and I for them, and there's a great deal of kindness and sense and talent among them, in spite of what you call fashionable nonsense. You don't care to make people like you, to go into good society and cultivate your manners and tastes. I do, and I mean to make the most of every chance that comes. You can go through the world with your elbows out and your nose in the air and call it independence if you like. That's not my way. When Amy had wetted her tongue and freed her mind, she usually got the best of it, for she seldom failed to have common sense on her side. While Joe carried her love of liberty and hate of conventionalities to such an unlimited extent, she naturally found herself worsted in an argument. Amy's definition of Joe's idea of independence was such a good hit that both burst out laughing and the discussion took a more amiable turn. Much against her will, Joe at length consented to sacrifice a day to Mrs. Grundy and help her sister through what she regarded as a nonsensical business. The invitations were sent, nearly all accepted, and the following Monday was set apart for the grand event. Hannah was out of humor because her week's work was deranged and prophesied that If the washing and ironing weren't done regularly, nothing would go well anywhere. 
This hitch in the mainspring of the domestic machinery had a bad effect upon the whole concern. But Amy's motto was nil desperandum, and having made up her mind what to do, she proceeded to do it in spite of all obstacles.